We are uh, continuing on in our series on Ahab and Elijah. Uh, we've spent more time uh, these last few weeks with Elijah. Uh, today we're going to focus a little bit more on this, uh, this wicked, wicked king named Ahab. Let me read these um, first few verses of our text this morning. And if you find them confusing, uh, you're not alone. So we'll do our best. Let me read 1 Kings chapter 20, 1 through 12. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the kings of Israel answered, King of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I send to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself like he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel. I get to serve as the campus pastor here at the Olathe Campus, and uh, I'm back. Uh, some of you, if you were here a few weeks ago, I, uh, I was sick on a Saturday night. It was not a joke, uh, and I had to text Jonathan Neef uh, to preach for me, and so after he was terrified, uh, he got up here and did a wonderful job, and so I'm okay. Thank you for reaching out, but uh, that was kind of a scary situation, uh, but, but it's so thankful for Jonathan and just him stepping in. So yeah, it was just, yeah, kind of a crazy situation. But um, I wanted to, really quick, for you kiddos who are here, elementary kids, if you didn't grab a Kid Connect, I'd love for you to get one. This is a great way to follow along uh, in the sermon. Uh, there's a little fill in the blanks, a little word search in the back. And if you fill it out and come to me afterwards, I'll give you some candy. Kids only, adults, I will push you away, okay? So uh, feel free to grab one and follow along. Uh, but again, it's really good to be here, uh, as I mentioned so thankful for, for Jonathan Neef and, and the way in which he is serving here at our church. Um, he, he and I actually were, were recently talking about kind of these hypothetical situations. We were talking about who would win in a fight uh, between myself and other staff members, you know, across Christ's community. And this, this is what, how we spend our days. Um, but, but we were just talking about, you know, if, would I win in a fight against myself or this other guy? And, and, um, and John was like, oh, you would totally win because I think you would fight dirty. I think you would totally fight dirty. And I was like, you're absolutely right because look at me. That's how, if I'm going to win in a battle, it's going to be because I fight dirty. You know? And so no holds bars, biting, everything. I, I'm, I'm all for that. And, and, and there's, something about, there's something about fighting, something about like wars, something, even, even arguments where we learn things about ourselves 
that we weren't maybe aware of prior to this engagement. There's something about battle that reveals something in our hearts, shows us for who we are. And I think in many ways, it's why we are so drawn to and kind of attracted to war movies, uh, which it's no surprise, the movie Dunkirk, it's the new, I think it's, it was the uh, blockbuster, like box office hit for the last weekend, and it's a phenomenal story. I haven't seen it yet because I have four children, so I don't see movies in the theater, but, uh, but, but basically what we were drawn to these stories because they're these moments that reveal either courage or cowardice within us. Uh, and actually in commenting on this very movie, uh, there's a philosopher's name, James K.A. Smith, and in talking about this movie, he says something really profound that speaks uh, to this, this interest that we have uh, in movies like this. And he says, films like Dunkirk and Saving Private Ryan, they occasion profound doubts about my own lack of courage. It's the ubiquitous ordinariness of these soldiers that gets me every time. Carpet salesmen and pipe fitters who answer a horrific call. And then he just kind of rhetorically asks the question, would I? Is there courage and fortitude and sacrifice deep down in this leisured, coddled soul? Could my comrades count on me? And, and I think that's a good question for us to ask because there are these moments where we're, we're faced, we're threatened, our greatest good, our, our most valuable relationships are threatened and we respond and there's something in us that is revealed, either we're seen to be courageous or to be cowards. There's something about war, something about fights, something about arguments that reveals that. And, and this morning, as Nathan mentioned, we, we turn in our focus from Elijah to King Ahab, the king of Israel, arguably one of the worst kings in the history of Israel. And what we see is that Ahab is at war in more ways than one, and not just with the war against Syria. And in this story, we see Ahab finds himself at war, not just with Syria, but with God himself. And in this story, what we find is that even though Ahab, in many ways, he, he is warring against Syria, but, but Ahab is also at war with God in various ways. And the thing I want us to see in our story this morning is that even as Ahab fights against God, God continues to fight for Ahab. He continues to fight and pursue the heart of Ahab, this rebellious, wayward king who has done so much to earn God's judgment against him. And yet God fights for Ahab. That's right, Ahab. Baal-worshipping, prophet-hunting, Jezebel-loving Ahab. God pursues him, fights for him, and longs to make himself known to Ahab. But before we, we jump into our, to our text and kind of unpack what God has for us, let me, let me pray for our time. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you in prayer to ask for your guidance Lord, I know that, that by myself, I, I, don't, I don't know how to handle your word. I need your spirit. To, so, Lord, would you teach us? Would you guide us? Would you show us your truth? Would you reveal to us, Lord, the ways in which we stand against you? And, Lord, help us to see the ways in which you are fighting for us. So bless this time as we hear from you in your word, and may you shape us and form us to be people who you have called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, just to kind of set the context for us in this story, so Israel uh, is being threatened by a northern nation, Syria, under the leadership of Ben-Hadad. And, and Ben-Hadad essentially has come in, and he's kind of throwing his weight around, trying to be this, this bully against Israel. And Ben-Hadad comes in, and, and it appears that he's trying to establish what is known as a suzerain vassal treaty. And this was a common treaty uh, kind of practiced in ancient Near Eastern time where basically a larger nation would come in 
and threaten a, a weaker nation and say, hey, we're going to kind of take over everything you have, and we're, we basically have access to all of your resources, but, but we will offer protection and some other things, but we're basically going to own everything you have. And that's kind of what Ben-Hadad is doing. He's trying to establish this kind of ancient version of bullying on a very large scale. And so Ben-Hadad comes in and essentially says to Ahab, hey, I'm going to meet you at the bike racks tomorrow. I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to take your milk money. I'm going to go through your locker and date your sister, essentially. That's what, kind of what he's doing in this moment. And, and Ahab, instead of like being bold and standing against him, he's like, hey, that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll show up early and I'll bring my lunch money too. And here's my locker combination and my sister's phone number. Like he, he just gives in to what Ben-Hadad is demanding. And then Ben-Hadad comes back and kind of ups the demand. He says, you know what, actually, I'm going to come tomorrow and I'm going to take everything. I'm going to come into your home and take everything that I desire because it's mine. I'm coming tomorrow. I'm taking all that I want. And so he's increased the demand. It is now more immediate. It's more extensive and more intrusive. And now Ahab's kind of freaking out because he kind of thought that this was just more of a threat, a little hollow threat, not really something that was going to take place. And so Ahab goes back to the elders of Israel and says, what should we do? And the elders advise Ahab, say, hey, don't, don't give in to this demand. Say, it's okay if we want to form this treaty, but, but don't give in to this demand that he's coming tomorrow and taking everything. We can't allow that. So Ben-Hadad, or Ahab goes back to Ben-Hadad and tells him, we can't kind of follow through with these demands you're making, and Ben-Hadad is furious. And he threatens Ahab very strong with words that are very intense. He's like, look, I'm going to come after you. I'm going to hunt you down. You are dead. I'm going to destroy you and all your people. And so then, in a moment of either courage or stupidity, Ahab like, like starts talking trash against Ben-Hadad in this moment, this very strong, powerful nation. And we see it in verse 11, what, what Ahab says. He says, and the king of Israel, Ahab, answered, tell him, Ben-Hadad, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. And it's kind of a weird phrase. It's essentially this, this idiom that means don't count your chickens before they hatch or, or don't start celebrating before you're in the end zone, essentially. And, and this makes Ben-Hadad furious. And so he's even angrier. And then and to make matters worse, like he and his friends have just finished off a keg of Natty Light. Like they're drunk and angry now and they're coming after Ahab and all of Israel. And so the situation does not look good for Ahab and God's people. And so what, what happens? Why is all this taking place? What on earth is God doing? It looks like he's finally going to bring justice against Ahab, this king who has been evil and wicked and disobedient. But instead, God brings a prophet. And he brings a prophet who brings, get this, good news. Which is like the first time we see it. Like every prophet that's shown up in our stories, it's all bad news. It's all negative but God sends a prophet to Ahab with good news. And what we see is that God is working in this situation, not to bring justice and judgment against Ahab, but on the contrary, to show mercy against this king. Notice what the Lord says to Ahab. He says, he says behold, I will give it, referring to Syria, I will give this multitude of armies of peoples into your hands this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What God is doing in setting up these armies of positioning Syria to come and wipe out Israel, it looks like Ahab's finally going to get his just desserts, but instead God is doing this. Why? So that Ahab, Baal-worshipping, prophet-hunting Ahab, God is pursuing him. 
the king who deserves judgment, the king who deserves to be wiped out, the king who should not be in leadership, God is extending mercy towards him. God is wanting to make himself known. God is doing all of this because he is fighting for the heart of Ahab. While God is, I mean, in so many ways when we look at scripture, God is after the heart of all peoples. That he is the God of all nations, all people groups, but he is no less the God of individuals. While he is after the, the hearts of all peoples, he is no less after the heart of Ahab individually. And that's what we see in this story in chapter 20. Now, on one hand, this is incredible to see God's mercy, that he's extending it to this wayward, rebellious king who has done everything to deserve God's judgment. What an amazing picture of God's mercy, of his long-suffering. The Bible uses this word to describe God's patience with his rebellious people. But on the other hand, Ahab is a wicked king who has led Israel into the worship of false gods and all that it entails in Baal worship. Child sacrifice, self-mutilation, these disgusting practices, Ahab has not only endorsed them, but he's promoting it and encouraging the practice of these things. And God is showing mercy to this king. And the reason why, and, and this should alarm us. I mean, if, if, if we're not alarmed by this, we don't think that this is a, a crazy deal, then we have a very low view of God's mercy and grace. God extending mercy to Ahab should shock us. So why is God doing this? Why is he extending mercy to Ahab? It's because God is a God who mercifully fights for the hearts of his people, even when they fight against him. God is a God who mercifully fights for the hearts of his people, even though they fight against him. God is quick to extend mercy, even when we fail to see and understand his mercy and appreciate it. God is quick to forgive Ahab and to extend mercy towards him, even though Ahab is blinded by all the mercies that he has received from God. And this kind of flies in the face of the way we typically think of the God of the Old Testament. You know, the kind of very simplistic view of reading the Bible is in the Old Testament, God was angry and filled with justice and wrath and, and, and hatred, and then he becomes a Christian in the New Testament, and now he's happy, nice, and forgiving. And, and, and that's not really the true picture of God. God does not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He is one God and the same. He does not change. In fact, one commentator in referring to how God acts in First and Second Kings, he he says this, it's very helpful. He says, the impression we get from First and Second Kings is not that God is a stingy disciplinarian with an anger problem. If anything, the God of First and Second Kings is irresponsibly indulgent towards his people. By the time Judah is sent into Babylonian exile in Second Kings 25, we're not saying, my, what a harsh God. If we read attentively, attentively we are saying, it's about time. What took so long? The offense of First and Second Kings is the offense of God's mercy. Because what Ahab deserves is death. Ahab deserves to be not just taken away from the throne of Israel to stop being in leadership. He deserves to die for what he's done. He has led Israel into false worship. He has led them into all of these disgusting and perverse practices. And yet God allows him to live and more than that, continues to extend mercy towards him. Now, the good news for us, the way this kind of, I think, connects to our lives is that the same God who mercifully pursues and fights for the heart of wayward, rebellious Ahab is the same God who fights for and pursues mercifully our hearts. 
That the story of God pursuing Ahab and saying, Ahab, I'm doing all of this that you might know me, that you might be in relationship with me, that you might see who I am and thus see who you are. The same God who mercifully fights for the heart of Ahab mercifully fights for our hearts. And so the question for us to consider as we look at Ahab, because we might think like, Ahab, what an idiot. Why is God wasting his time? But we should be honest in saying, why does God waste his time with us? Why does God extend his mercy towards us when we don't deserve it? When we continually turn to other things, when we offend him, when we live in complete obliviousness to his existence. And so the question we should ask ourselves is, do we see God fighting for us? Do we see God fighting for us? Do we see the ways in which God is trying to get our attention? Do we see it in the ways in which he forms relationships, that he is at work through these relationships to awaken us, to to draw us to himself? Do Do we see it in the way in which God reveals himself through his word as he speaks to us and shows us who he is? Do we see God mercifully fighting for our hearts as he even sends us through trials and difficulties and hardships as a way to strengthen us and to deepen our dependence upon him? Do we see God creating an opportunity for us to enjoy him through his creation and through the various blessings he places in our lives? Or are we like Ahab, completely oblivious to God's mercies that are new every morning? And we look at God and say, yeah, yeah, you've you've done some cool things, but what have you done for me lately? Perhaps the thing that keeps us from seeing God's merciful pursuit of us and his fight for our hearts is the fact that we have been consumed with such lesser things, that we have turned to lesser things to find our joy and satisfaction, and that that keeps us from seeing the ways in which God has blessed us. In some ways, I I think we're like Ahab in the sense that we wouldn't see God's mercy if it slapped us in the face. And throughout this whole narrative, we don't see Ahab recognizing God once in the ways in which he has provided for Ahab. He has delivered him time and time again. Perhaps we can't see God fighting for us because like Ahab, we are actually fighting against God's mercy. In some ways, I think the way in which we don't see God fighting for us is because we are fighting against God's mercy. Now, l- let me explain what I mean by that. Let's, l- let's jump back into the story. Uh, so, so God follows through with this promise. That, that he sends the prophet, says, good news, you will be victorious in battle. And God follows through, and it's, it's amazing. It says that Ahab was victorious over the Syrian armies with the, the help of the, the servants of the governors, which is basically like a bunch of like young political interns that can barely shave. Like these guys, not military trained at all, this is who God sent with Ahab to be victorious in battle as a way for God to say, look, if I can defeat an army, the Syrian armies, with a bunch of like political interns, the point is to show God's work in this and not Ahab's military genius. So Ben-Hadad gets whooped, but then he vows to come back with a vengeance. He's like, all right, you, you beat us this time, but I swear when we come back in the spring, I'm going to destroy you utterly, entirely. I will not allow you to have the final word. And so this leads up to, it sets the stage for, for the next battle in the spring. And, and, and again, God is faithful. And again, the odds are stacked against Israel and Ahab, and they are victorious in battle yet again. And Ahab responds by falling to his knees in worship to God and saying, you are the one true and living God. I will devote myself to you and establish and restore the kingdom of Israel once again. 
Wrong, he doesn't do that. That's if you're following along the Bible, he doesn't do that. He doesn't even recognize that God is at work in this. Ahab is completely oblivious time and time again to how God is mercifully provided for he and for Israel. Not only does Ahab fail to recognize God's mercy, to fail to recognize that God is pursuing Ahab in this moment and bringing about delivery and victory in battle, Ahab goes to the extreme opposite and disobeys God and forms a covenant with Ben-Hadad, his enemy. I mean, he, he goes so far to like invite him to the next family reunion. The scripture refers to uh, Ahab calling Ben-Hadad his brother. He makes a covenant with an enemy who has said, I hate your God, I hate your people, and I'm going to utterly wipe you out. And Ahab says, I like you, let's hang out. Like that's, that's what he does in this moment. And rather than following God and saying, look, God expected Ahab to destroy Ben-Hadad, to, to put him to death. And, and Ahab had the opportunity and he failed to do so. Not only did he fail to do so, he chose to make a covenant with Ben-Hadad. And the thing we have to understand, because some of us might be thinking, well, why, why shouldn't he do that? I mean, shouldn't Ahab extend the same mercy to Ben-Hadad that God has extended to Ahab? And the thing we have to understand is that the position that Ahab holds as the king of Israel is the equivalent of, of the Supreme Court. You see, he's not just a leader, but Ahab is the one who delivers and executes justice for God's people. And so for, for Ahab to fail to bring to justice Ben-Hadad, this leader, this, this king who has promised, I will wipe out the people of God, I will destroy your people. For Ahab to not follow through and to be just, it's not that he is being a nice guy. He is failing to execute his rule. We would, we would have no patience with a Supreme Court that just overturned every single murder case in the country. We, we would have no patience for that. Why? Because the Supreme Court is meant to uphold justice in the same way the king of Israel is meant to do that as well. And instead of executing justice, Ahab befriends the enemy of God, makes a covenant with him instead of being committed to God himself. What we see in the story is that Ahab essentially, he is willing to bow before and to give his life to almost anything or anyone other than Yahweh, other than the God of Israel. Ahab is so willing to give in. And this whole time, I mean, God is trying to, to protect Israel, to preserve Israel, to prevent Syria from having an unjust reign. He's trying to allow Israel to grow, to be established, to be a blessing to all nations. And Ahab fails to see it. And he continues time and time again to provide for Ahab. And Ahab refuses to see God's hand at work. And in all of this, not only does, does Ahab fail to, to follow through what he's supposed to do, but Ahab is completely oblivious. There's not one ounce of recognition or, or praise or thanksgiving. There's no sense of conviction within Ahab. He just does whatever he wants without recognizing the work of God in all of this. And so while God is fighting for Ahab's heart, Ahab fights against God's mercy. And he does so primarily by just utterly ignoring God. It's not so much a rebellion. It's not so much, God, I, I don't care what you're doing. I, I hate you. I, I don't want to live for you. It's just this complete obliviousness, this apathy, this indifference, that that is what is actually causing Ahab to fight against God's mercy. And in many ways, if we're honest, we, we, there's probably a sense in which we kind of identify a little bit or maybe a lot of bit with, with Ahab, that, that we find ourselves rebelling against God in various ways. 
that we find ourselves maybe having this mindset of, what have you done for me lately? When all the while, the, the one that provides the, lung, the breath in our lungs to even say those words is providing mercy and grace towards us in so many ways. And so perhaps we, like Ahab, we don't see God's mercy in our lives. We don't see him pursuing us. And so the question we should ask ourselves is this, do we see the ways that we fight against God? Do we see the ways that we fight against God and the way in which he is pursuing us, fighting for us? And, and, and sometimes we, we, we think of fighting against God like Ahab, I mean, he was, he was completely disobedient. You know, God had said, I have a standard for life and I want you to live in this way. And Ahab says, no, I'm going to live my own way. I'm going to follow my own standard. I will be my own king. I will be the determiner of my own fate. And, and, and some of us, that, that's kind of how our fight against God is manifested and just complete rebellion of saying, I don't want to do what you have called me to do. But maybe for some of us, we fight against God in a different way. We fight against him by completely undermining or diminishing or failing to see the ways in which he has provided for us, where we ignore or neglect or downplay his mercy, where, where we have no gratitude whatsoever towards him for the ways in which he has provided for us, and the ways in which he has loved us, the ways in which he is seeking to make himself known to us. Perhaps our fight against God is manifested in that way, failing to see God's mercy and failing to have gratitude for him. I mean, we may even have this mindset of, why, why, why shouldn't God extend mercy to me? Why shouldn't he bless me? I mean, have you seen me? Have you seen the things that I've accomplished? Like, we have this expectation, this entitlement that God ought to bless us. But here's the thing. We really don't think that we need God's mercy. We really don't think we are dependent upon him. And the ironic thing, uh, Francis Chan, he says this so well, it's just a great line to capture this concept. He says that the irony is that while God doesn't need us, but still wants us, we desperately need God, but don't really want him most of the time. Are we aware of our deep dependence upon God's mercies every single day, or do we live with an obliviousness or an entitlement mindset? But thirdly, perhaps one of the ways that we also fight against God, and this is the one that, that strikes me, is that perhaps we rebel against God, we fight against God, not in our disobedience, not in our lack of gratitude, but in our complete and utter ignoring or ignorance of God's presence. This is why I kind of love and hate the definition of sin in the, the New City Catechism. It's a new catechism that's come out, and the definition of sin is so helpful, but also in t- very bittersweet in the way it reveals what sin is. And it says this, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him. We rebel against God, not just in our defiance and disobedience, not saying, you've said this and I'm going to do this. We don't just rebel against God by being ungrateful. We don't just rebel against God by being entitled. We rebel against God by living with utter indifference and no reference to him whatsoever in the world. And this is the one that strikes me because if, if sin is just doing bad things, I can understand that and I can avoid those bad things. But if I'm honest, far too many hours, days, and weeks go by that I don't have a real awareness of God's presence in my life, that I don't function with, with an understanding that God is at work in this world, that he's at work in my life, that he's at work in, the, in the, the lives of those around me. 
If I'm really honest, I live too many of my days as a functional atheist. And what I mean by that, maybe you've heard that expression before, but I'm not an atheist in the sense that I I would say intellectually or on paper, there is no God, I don't believe it, it is intellectually untenable, I, I would never say that. But functionally, the way I live my life, far too many hours, days, and weeks go by where I don't even recognize or live with an understanding that there is an infinite creator who's made all things and who desires to make himself known to me, who upholds the universe by the power of his word. I don't live with that mindset. For all intents and purposes, I live as a functional atheist. This is the biggest way that I find myself fighting against God's mercy. In many ways, this story, it it has led me to ask the question, I mean, the the more I get into God's merciful pursuit of Ahab, I ask myself, like, why is he doing, like, why is he wasting his time with Ahab? But it's led me to ask, like, why is he wasting his time with me? Why does God pursue me? Why does he fight for my heart? Why does he care that I know him and delight in him and worship him when he knows that time and time again I rebel against him, I ignore him, I show so little appreciation and recognition for his mercy in my life? Why on earth would God pursue and fight for the heart of any of us? And it's because while God is fighting for our hearts, he is simultaneously fighting for his glory. What we see in the story of God's pursuit and his merciful fight for the heart of Ahab is that God, as he is fighting for our hearts, he is fighting for his glory. And we see it throughout this whole story that everything God has been doing and working towards, he's setting up this scenario where Ahab will be victorious in not one but two battles. And why is God doing this? What is the motivation behind it? God desires to make himself known that he would be seen and known as the one true God over all creation. God's desire to pursue Ahab's heart is simultaneously driven by his desire to make much of himself, to magnify his own name, to promote his glory. God wants Ahab to occupy, God wants Ahab to to have in his heart, He wants the the throne of Ahab's heart to be occupied by God alone, supremely and chiefly, nothing else. God's desire is to make much of himself. And that sounds completely conceited. Because you're probably thinking, like, like, how how is this a, a picture of a good God? Like, I mean, you, I mean, I like the idea of God pursuing Ahab and being merciful. That's great. But now all of a sudden, God's motivation is actually self serving. How on earth does this paint a picture of a good and loving God? The reason why is because as God seeks to glorify himself, he does so by trying to get all of us to see him as the chief and supreme good of all things, to see that he is the one that our hearts long for. Whether we see it or recognize it or not, God is the one that our hearts desire. And he wants to give us the greatest good, namely himself. And the only way that can happen is if we do place God at the throne of our hearts and say, you and you alone are what my heart is after. God, as he is pursuing us, he's wanting to give us the greatest good, namely himself. That is why as God is passionate about his glory, he is simultaneously loving us by giving us himself. When I was in college, I came to the Lord uh, around my freshman year of college, and I remember one of the first books I read, like Christian books, is a book called Desiring God by John Piper, and there was this line that's kind of worn out in this book, 
of mine. And it just captures this concept so well of God's simultaneous desire to be glorified and his love for us. And Piper says this, he says, if God loves us enough to make our joy full, he must not only give us himself, he must also win from us the praise of our hearts. Not because he needs to shore up some weakness in himself, but because he loves us and seeks the fullness of our joy that can be found only in knowing and praising him. And this is the great kicker here. If God, if he is truly for us, he must be for himself. As God fights for his glory, as God desires to be known, to be worshipped, to be cherished and adored above all things, he is doing so by fighting for your heart and mine. Let, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine, so my son Edmund just turned one two days ago. Imagine Edmund has been kidnapped. And, and he is raised by his captors for the rest of his life to believe that I am not his father, that his captors are his true family, that this is where he will find contentment and joy to be a part of this wicked cult that they're a part of. He's been brainwashed and deluded to believe this is home, this is love, this is family. I would do everything in my power to find my boy and to get a hold of him and to convince him you are not with your family. You have been kidnapped and deluded. That is not your home. I am your father. You will find love and peace and fulfillment in my home with your, with your siblings, with your sisters, with your mother. Come and be with me. I know what is best for you. No one on earth would question my love for my son. No one would look at me and say, what a self-centered father. You would look at me and see, you would see nothing less than a father who loves his son and will stop at nothing to get him to see the love of his father. No one would question me. And this is what God is doing with Ahab. This is what God is doing with you and with me. In so many ways, we have been kidnapped and deluded by our own sin. We've been so quick and easy to turn to lesser things and say, this is my God, this is my Father, this is my purpose in life. All the while, we've been led away from the source of love and life. And God mercifully is fighting for our hearts to say, you have been deluded. You have been convinced of a false narrative. Come back to your true father. Be with me, the one who is fighting for you, the one who loves you more than anyone or anything else. The story of Ahab, the story of God's pursuit of Ahab tells us this. God fights for his people even when they fight against him. This has been the story really of all of Scripture. It's not just the story of 1 Kings 20. It's not just the story of 1 Kings. It's the story of all of Scripture. That God has, has called Israel to himself. He's called a people. And, 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 and he has delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. But, but they continue to rebel and turn to false idols. They continue to turn away from God. And he pursues them and beckons them and calls them back to himself time after time after time. And God does that with you and me. He doesn't give up on us because his mercy is unending. Each of us are like kidnapped children who have been convinced that who we are living for, what we are living for is our true good, our true God. And it is keeping us from the merciful Father who is saying, no, I am the one in whom your heart delights. And yet, despite the fact that we fight against him and belittle his mercy, and utterly ignore him, 
God still fights for our hearts. He still fights to win us back and to call us his own. In, in so many ways, these stories in, in 1 Kings we've been looking at, it, they're, they're stories of God's battles against his enemies. His enemies of death, of sin, of rebellion, of idolatry. But the thing we have to understand is that we are on that list. You and I, at some point, if we are not in Christ Jesus, we were on that list of God's enemies. And that we deserve to be destroyed because of sin. And yet what we see in this story is that instead of destroying us, God restores us by allowing himself to be destroyed on our behalf. God's merciful pursuit and his fight for our hearts is seen in the fact that he entered into our fight with us to show us how much he means when he says, I am after your heart and nothing less. To show us how serious he is about that fight, about that pursuit, God entered into our fight with us to fight our fight for us, the fight that we deserved to lose, and yet by Christ Jesus, we have victory. This is the story of Ahab, because at the cross, at the cross, Jesus entered into our world to show us that he will defeat all enemies that stand in our way, that he will not allow anything to to keep us from God our Father who loves us more than we can imagine. And we are able to share in Christ's victory over sin and death. We are able to be victorious over all of our battles because God in his mercy fights for us. We are able to share in his victory not by how great we fight alongside him, but in our ability and willingness to surrender and let him fight for us. That is the story here. The question that we must ask ourselves is this. Are we able and willing to let God fight for us? Will we give up our fight against him? Will we give up our rebellion against him, our ignorance of him, our functional atheism, our ingratitude that doesn't see his mercy? Are we willing to give that up and let him fight for us? Because he is the only one who can grant us a victory in this world and the world to come. Are you willing to surrender and let him fight for you the one who desires to make himself known to you. Let us take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, I, I do confess to you, Lord, my, my functional atheism, I confess to you that I do allow too many minutes and hours and days to go by without even recognizing your presence, without giving acknowledgement to who you are and to what you have done in my life. Lord, I ask that your spirit now would convict us of the ways in which we fight against your mercy, the ways in which we slap you in the face, the ways in which we rebel against your design for life. Lord, would you show us the foolishness of our ways that we might be able to see that as you are desiring to make yourself known and glorify yourself, you are doing so because you love us, because you want to give us the longing and desires of our hearts, which is you. Lord Jesus, thank you for entering our fight with us, fighting the fight that we deserved to lose, that we might share in your victory. Lord, would you be the one who fights for us, and may we be willing to surrender and let you be the one who fights our fights for us. We pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory.
Amen. Again, thanks for being here. Uh, if you're new, we'd love to meet you and greet you. Uh, I'll be uh, in the back. Uh, just love to say hi. Uh, but but as, as we leave uh, being the church gathered to be the church scattered, I want to share these words from Ephesians 1, this beautiful picture of God's pursuit of his glory as he pursues us in his love of the Father towards us. So hear these words. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week. Amen.